Welcome back to The People Factor. I'm your host, Jane Turville. And today, we'll listen to part two of my interview with filmmaker Stephanie Welch. I must admit, my understanding of eugenics was pretty limited. Let's listen as Stephanie helps expand that view. Um, in the earliest days of eugenics, they were looking at other methods. And one of them being, of course, just basically killing people. They did consider it, talked about it, and said that that would not be morally acceptable, but they did consider it. Um, but then they also talked about just basically letting people die economically. And that's one of the things that laissez-faire capitalism was seen as a method in and of itself that would weed out the so-called inferior people. You know, today, the fact that our government has taken next to zero steps to accommodate people who are now unemployed because of COVID, they have, they've taken zero steps. I mean, they have $1,200 checks to some people, 600 to some, and if you didn't make enough money at all, you didn't even get a check. The cruel choices that were made by both parties in our country, you know, whether it's a political game or not among elites, which is part of it, I think, but there's also some larger forces at play and they know quite well what's going to happen to people who don't have access. They already, so many people didn't already have access. There was a ton of unemployment already. People weren't on the books anymore, as we know, homeless. I mean, we know the situations that we're in in this country and here they go putting into play a depression, an economic depression that will be worse than the one that we had in the earlier part of the 20th century. And so that is in and of itself a eugenic program. It may not be called that, but when you do not allow people the means to make a living and to feed their families, there are certain people that are going to drop out because of that, and we know who they are. And Congress knows who they are. So in other countries where they know that people need that sort of support, people are doing much better. So I just think, you know, even though we may not have the sterilization policies in place and happening, they're still on the books. They're, they still haven't overturned the Supreme Court decision by a liberal judge saying that uh, forced sterilization was okay based on the idea that forced vaccination was okay. That was the, what he was using as precedent there. That has not been overturned. I mean, we did see in the old days, a lot of people were standing up and, and fought off these laws. Many times, it was some battles in states around the country. So people were standing up, especially the Catholic Church. They were very big about this. They were, they were very anti-eugenic. G.K. Chesterton was, wrote a book called Eugenics and Other Evils, which I would recommend. It's a wonderful, really kind of funny take on it. He's just fascinating. So we can stand up against it. But I think if, if it's only seen only in the days of like actual policies versus the laissez-faire economic situation that we have, which is really at the heart of uh, our newest eugenic program, I would call it, um, as far as, as long as people are not standing up against that and saying that people must be taken care of, we're going to have the same sort of outcome. You know, Stephanie, it strikes me that these policies also have a psychological impact on us, both as a society and as individuals. Now, I know you're not a psychologist, 
But can you talk a little bit about what you found as you were doing your research for the film that might impact how policies and the understanding of who we are affects our psychological well-being? There is also a certain amount of internalization of this whole concept of race to begin with in the United States. I mean, it's, it's historically, you know, really where a lot of these inequalities were determined early on was to try to split people into different groups. And that was an easy one in these early days and persists today, this idea that people believe that there's more than one race in our human world, and there isn't. It's never, never been proven. There's still attempts, there's still beliefs, there's still people like Nicholas Wade from the New York Times. He wrote a whole book about how DNA is telling us that there are separate groups of people that that they're calling races, which is just garbage. Um, but I think that we still believe that. We talk about, even in, even in progressive language, we talk about racial diversity. And it's like, well, okay, we just need to make sure that we understand it's a concept. The race is only a concept and that it's a reality, as we know, over, that's, that's at the base of the massive amount of, of very much of our inequality in the United States. Technically, scientifically, in every way, it's just not true. You see a lot of people who are doing these studies deciding, it turns out whenever they do these studies, they're never the ones on the bottom, of course. <laughs> the people do the studies like, just so happens every single time, we're right up here. Depends on who's doing the, uh, the measuring. You start to see who's on top, quote unquote. But there's just no basis to it, you know, and I think when you see Charles Murray, who's still being carted out and interviewed by people on MSNBC, even in the progressive world, it's a really scary thing that, that it's not being talked about more, that these supposedly biological inequalities that they're calling fixed have no basis in reality whatsoever. So that's another danger, I think, is, is people internalizing this idea that there are separate groups of people. The mythology of race in our country depends on everybody you know, believing in it. And the more we can shed light on the fact that there's no basis in it, especially if you believe in DNA and genetics, if you believe in that science and that there's some value there, that is one thing that they have found that's undeniable. So we should definitely let people know about that to look more into it. That is so interesting and insightful, Stephanie. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think sometimes, especially when you get into reproduction rights and such, people are either engaged or they're not. When you start to talk about it at an economic level, you engage so many more people because everyone understands that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it because I don't think that that is something that comes out in the film. So I'm really excited to be able to share that with, with my audience here. Let's chat a little bit about equity versus equality. You know, it's always been equal rights. And recently, equity has come into play and has kind of said equality it doesn't really help because you can't be equal if you're all starting in different places. If we're all running a race and one person gets to start at this point, but another person is a quarter of a mile back and is supposed to win that race or at least tie in that race, that's not really equitable. <laughs> and, so, and I think we could really get down in the weeds with this, but just talking about equity and how you see, you know, going forward, especially genetics and the conversations around genetics, 
how you see equity and equality as part of that conversation and maybe how our society in general can start to look at genetics and genetic engineering in light of equity? So, yeah, it's interesting that in our film we look at equality specifically because of the view of who people are, right? So it's like, do you see your fellow human being as equal and with equal value? And like you said, where everyone can thrive, is that our ideology? Is that really what the American dream is supposed to be? Or is it a race, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think this idea of like, you know, there are people who are, it's not a level playing field, you know, all these sorts of metaphors that we use really reflect, it's an insight into the way we look at it. In, in this country, I think it is presented as a race. You gotta make it, you gotta, you gotta get somewhere, you gotta, you know, and that there's not enough to go around. It is this idea of, you know, some scarcity thing that we know is not true, at least in this country. Um, and that you're supposed to uh, blame yourself if you don't make it, quote, unquote. And it's an unfortunate, so the language, I think, is really important to look at. Um, and so when we kind of tackled this idea of the American dream, um, from this point of view, we were saying you can't believe in both. You can't believe in genetic determinism, biological determinism, and the American dream. You just, there are two polar opposites, you know? And so when, when, it's, when you get into the question of equity, if you really believe people are equal and have equal value, that will change policies, you know? And that will allow for equity to come about. And at that point, you know, when you start talking about that, some people will say, oh, that's, you know, socialism, and we want everybody to be the same. And so you have to tweak out all the different policies and, you know, make sure everybody's exactly the same. It's like, come on, you know, that, that's not the, that's not, you don't have to go there to that extent. You, we know where the inequities are and the causes and a lot of the policies that cause these things. So let's start there. Let's start with fixing the policies that are already discriminating against people. But then we know even sometimes policies have changed and yet the discrimination continues, you know. So why is that? And we have to tackle that. And it's usually people breaking the law and they don't, they don't get in trouble for it. They're, it's ignored, you know, continuing racism and housing and jobs and over and over and over again. We, we know what's going on. So the law necessarily and the policies aren't enough to bring about that kind of equity. So it's really comes back to community, in my view, you know, and people looking out for each other and saying, well, what's happening in my community? Who are these homeless people and what can we do to help them? Where, where, what are their stories? Where do they come from? What, why are they homeless? Who needs help? You know, and you start to, when you start looking at those realities, I think that's where the policies start to come clear that where we can actually make changes as a community in our own neighborhoods to bring about the kind of equity. And those things will then reflect on larger policies that at a state and, you know, federal level. When Lyndon Johnson, who I don't think it's enough credit for his Great Society efforts, and Sergeant Shriver, who is the champion in um, implementing those, we highlight in the film. But the Great Society had a lot of um, really amazing things. If you watch Lyndon Johnson's speech, he talks about people being able to thrive. That one of these rights is the right to be in nature, to have time to reflect, to be with your families. You know, that's, that's what human rights are about. I think that's what the American dream was supposed to be, where you can take vacations and you can, you know, 
live partly in some leisure and have some leisure time and these kinds of things, but, you know, not just be a cog in a machine that is, you know, cranking at whatever speed that the people in charge determine it to be. So I feel like when it comes to genetic engineering and eugenics and these sorts of things, you know, there's uh, one of the people I worked with on the film says um, they want to, they don't want to change the world. They want to change us to, to fit the world they want. And the same with plants or animals. Well, let's not, you know, let's not um, change our agricultural system. You know, let's change the animals and plants to be able to survive in a climate changed world. Let's make them more resilient to climate change. It's like, well, it's not really, it's not really a solution. That's a technical solution. No. And the same with people, you know, there's a real idea of these super babies and this kind of thing where you can improve people and improve their intelligence and really, you know, a focus on children. There's a it's really scary, scary focus here in China and a lot of places looking at children's genes to try to determine what path they should take so that they're on the right path instead of the wrong path in order to make them a productive member of society, you know, and that's a really scary way to look at human beings. And, and it's wrong. I mean, there, there's, there are no sorts of genes that you can tweak to do anything that will be of any benefit to anybody in terms of intelligence or abilities of this kind of thing. If we really look at ourselves that way, that we are just, you know, um, machines basically that that can be manipulated in some way to have some sort of outcome and i think that people probably do believe that to a certain extent the idea of equity and equality is tossed out because as a lot of people like charles ray would say it's inevitable you know we're just seeing what nature has brought about when we're seeing these inequalities you can't do anything about it so we have to be sure that that people know that that's not true that's one of the reasons I wanted to make the film is we don't have those limitations. We aren't limited by our biology in terms of really creating equity and, and really seeing each other as equal of equal value. You know, we have this ability to change this gene to help this specific illness. And, oh, well, what if we could change this to make this person more intelligent? Or what? And it becomes a circle, and pretty soon you have people choosing who other people will be. And so it becomes this vicious, vicious circle again and again. And, um, you know, I, I know Jurassic Park gets quoted a lot, but <laughs> just because we can doesn't mean we should. <laughs> well, that, and I would argue that we can't. That, that's yeah. the main thing is that, the, yeah. you know, they claim to have this power and there's no evidence that it's true. I mean, you, no one's asking. We, don't see, we, see, we only see the hype and the news, right? We don't see that anymore, which is interesting. Because um, at least they stopped hyping it. So I think the best part of this film for me was doing the research and the archival research, and you could really get a feel for things through film and through yeah. radio and all these instead of just written, you know, academic mm -hmm. papers and whatnot. And one was the White Citizen Councils in the South had their own television show, and it was, you know, it was distributed for free. I mean, they put a lot of money into this. You know, they went to great pains to try to get scientists on who would support a eugenic view to mm -hmm. support their policy, white supremacist policies. And I think that if there is any interest right now, and I'm seeing it, a lot of people grasping to be able to use this kind of science. And so I can see the, the caution mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that interest is always there. It's always going to be there to try to take the science and to say, you know, some people just shouldn't be having children um, or even be able to, 
have access to mm -hmm. resources and, and government assistance. You know, Stephanie, the bottom line is everyone has the right to thrive. That is everyone. And what our task is, is to identify the policies that can allow that to happen. And you've identified some that work against everyone thriving, both in your film and in this discussion. But we are human. Uh, we don't always rise to our better angels. In fact, I think our better angels get pretty lonely sometimes. So my very last question to you is, do you think we can change? Do you think that we can rise to meet the um, need that we have in order for everyone to thrive? I, I think we can change. You know, I think that it's really about you know how much money is spent. You know, that's why you talk about climate change, science denial, and this kind of thing. Well, there's a lot of money spent on convincing people that it's a hoax, and so that gives me hope because if you have to spend billions of dollars and really put all this energy into um, tricking people, then that means that they're, they're inherently, some people are going to make the choices that would be good, not just for themselves, but for their neighbors and for the neighbors and the, and the planet in general. So there, there's where I find hope. But the, as we know, and I'm, I'm sure maybe Bill Ryerson talks about this, but um, some of the, the policies that do the most good in reducing population is when women especially have access, full access, no questions asked, <laughs> and control over their reproductive rights mm -hmm. every single time. That's one of the key reasons that where we see population dipping. And then in some places they're saying, sounding the alarm, like, oh my gosh, you know, all these women who are being educated, they're going to college, they're having access, they can, you know, wait to have children and think about how many that might be and plan better. And so to me, you know, that, that's always the key when I think about these larger questions, you know, reducing consumption on a general level across the universe, you know, renewable resources that are truly renewable and not phony. We know these things, right? So, so it really shouldn't be that complex of a topic when you're, that you're tackling here with population growth. But it does get, I think, complex because we know the forces that are, are you know, when, when rapid consumption is the point in the way that they make the most money um, and have the most power, political power, we can't take it away from that larger, those larger political questions, which is about access to resources, not just for, um, you know, getting your new iPhone, but for, you know, war, for geostrategic, you know, strategic questions, There's a lot of stuff going on there. I do think that people can make the choice to be better if we have access, like, Every day I, I think about the amount of plastic that's in my life that I do not want and trying to avoid. And, and it's almost impossible not to have a ton of plastic that I'm dealing with, you know. I mean, there's so many ways that we could, if we had the choices, that we would make them, I think. So I just wanted to say that about our, our human nature. You know, it's very flexible. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie, and I do hope that you'll take time to watch A Dangerous Idea. It's a fascinating and very important film. Other films that are great to watch are The Gene by Ken Burns. It's a great series, and PBS also has a great program called CRISPR. Both films delve into some really interesting ethical questions around genetics. This episode exposes the ugliness of population control. 
and it has no place in a population growth discussion. So you may say, well, Jane, if the discussion isn't about control, what's it about? Well, as Stephanie pointed out, it's complex. But population growth discussion has at its core two very simple values. Every person on the planet has the right to thrive. And every person on the planet has the right to self-determination. The conversation measures how changes, either increases or decreases in population, impact an individual's ability to realize these two simple values. There's nothing straightforward about it, and most of the connections are indirect. But that doesn't make it any less important. In fact, it's critical because as history has shown us, we often don't see the impacts of indirect connections until there is a crisis. So that's what the people factor is here for, to unpack the complexities and make population growth easier to talk about. That is all that we're doing here. In our next episode, we'll take a look at the first of three main components of population change. So please join me next Wednesday. Until then, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Have a wonderful weekend. <music>